Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Hamish Fulton. We recorded the program live at Washington's Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden last weekend. Hamish Fulton is a walking artist. Back in the mid-1960s, along with his St. Martin's classmates Gilbert and George and Richard Long, Fulton was among the key figures who insisted that in an artwork need not be an object, that it could be, say, a walk. Almost entirely unbeknownst to the St. Martin students, artists in Los Angeles, Amsterdam, and in other cities were also moving away from objects and toward a more conceptual idea of art. Fulton's work was featured in the just-concluded Tate Britain survey Conceptual Art in Britain, 1964-79. to The Tate presented a full survey of Fulton's career to that point in 2002. His work is included in a new Hirshhorn permanent collection hang that will remain on view into August 2017 and New York's Jose Bienvenu Gallery is presenting Fulton's first New York commercial exhibition in over a decade. That's on view through October 12th. Hamish Fulton, after the break. The Getty's Summer Book Sale is happening now. From a peek into the life of Cezanne through his personal letters, to an examination of L.A.'s modern architecture, to delightful children's books, beautifully illustrated exhibition catalogs, and scholarly art historical publications, there's something for the artist and everyone. Get 50% off selected titles through October 2nd at shop.getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Degas, A New Vision, the most significant international survey of the work of Edgar Degas in nearly 30 years. Houston is the only U.S. venue to present this phenomenal exhibition, assembled from public and private collections around the world. Opens October 16th exclusively at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Degas for more. The critically acclaimed major retrospective Bruce Connor, It's All True, is now in its final weeks at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Touching on various themes of post-war society, from rising consumer culture to the dread of nuclear apocalypse, Connor's art was widely recognized for its originality and daringly dark subject matter. A series of the artist's groundbreaking experimental films, Movie in My Head, Bruce Connor and Beyond, ends Friday, September 30th. Get more info and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Inner Circle Galleries at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. stretch more than 400 linear feet. For her largest work, Lynn Myers has made a monumental site-specific wall drawing, that encircles the museum's second level. When Meyer's works nesting one line beside another, she welcomes and magnifies the imperfections that arise naturally from her process. Tiny ripples become waves that pulse with energy. Get more information at hershorn.si.edu and get caught in the current. Hamish Fulton, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Let's start in kind of the broadest, most obvious place for a walking artist, within world traditions, so traditions broader than art. There's a long tradition of walking pilgrimage, whether we're talking about the Muslim Hajj, Christian pilgrimage to, to, to Christian sites, or even in, in the United States, Thoreau and the importance of his 1851 lecture to the transcendentalism movement. 
When you were a student, when you were getting started in your early 20s, did you care about any of that? Were you interested in any of that, or did that all come later? Uh, no, I, I, to be honest, I didn't really know anything about all of what you just said. <laughs> I, I didn't uh, start from these positions at all, um, because I'm an old artist. So, uh, so when, when I started, 1964, that was the first art school that I went to, which was Hammersmith. One year, I failed the academic aspect of education, uh, so then I had to have a year out working because I couldn't continue on a degree course so then miraculously I was given a place at St. Martin's for two years which was absolutely fantastic excellent followed by one more year from ending in, in the summer of 1969 uh, at the Royal College of Art uh, so there are different things to say about all of that but to answer your question the it, the, the origins of making art about walking um, didn't really they, they don't sort of come from the most obvious places I would say I, I think I think, you know, that 1964, that's just sort of, it's a little bit less than 20 years after the end of the Second World War. So there was a lot of the issue of the change from, you know, the, the world of the parents, and then now you're a student, and then, then gradually in this period of time, people's minds, young people's minds were opening. Of course, you know, in many, many countries, not, I don't mean just in London, I mean, obviously here in the U.S., Many, many cultural changes uh, going on, uh, youth culture, the ascent of youth uh, as opposed to not say disrespect for elders or could be yeah, don't trust anyone over 30 I seem to remember was the, one of the statements. But um, So it's coming more from this kind of moment rather than uh, knowing anything at all about uh, pilgrimage routes. I wouldn't have known a thing about pilgrimage routes. I think it's also important to say that I didn't also know anything about Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, I think, which was published in 1962. So lots of huge kind of gaps, which gradually through time then I managed to put together because I think that walking is not an art medium. Uh, it's not a material either. So if, if somebody says, are you an artist? And the artist says, yes, I'm a painter. So immediately we have the idea of painting. Uh, in the case of walking, then, then there is no medium and, and there is no material. Meaning that it can then connect out to many, many different interests and also ways of making art. So when I was a student um, at St. Martin's in London, which was in the central, right in the middle of crowded London. It's just like one street across from Oxford Street, for example. Uh, one of the walking project, the first walking project that I did with um, other students was, was it, you know, in, re in retrospect, the kind of like a classical idea that we had. We, we said, um, like a group of students, we said that we're going to walk from here. That's, you know, this idea of here, wherever you are, you know, you're going to walk from wherever you are. You know, I made a, an artwork called the way to the mountains starts here, meaning that wherever you are now, you're going to walk to the mountains, wherever the mountains are. But in the case of this first walk on the 2nd of February 1967, a long time ago, we just came out of the art school. It was a bit of a walk at the beginning before that, which I won't describe. But anyway, the idea was to walk from the front entrance of the art school to the countryside. And, and so this is a very classical idea, you know, that you're, you're going to change the look of where you are by walking. You know, you're you're on a pavement, it's lots and lots of people coming and going, and you go up Charing Cross Road, turn left on Oxford Street, turn right on Edgware Road, and it goes on and on, and eventually on a whole series, of, unbelievably, of uh, many, many pavements, and even pavements in the countryside, by the side of a busy road, and then we ended in a small town called Radlett, and, and it was, it is literally, in, well, in 
1967 it was the countryside and then we just got on the train and went back to the art school you know in the early evening so what was the connection between the proto or early youth culture counterculture and walking was it that you were rejecting painting and sculpture or was there another connection between walking and youth culture I, I think, you know, again, trying to be really honest, that in, in the beginning it's very kind of misty and murky and the, the origins are, don't go like that. They they sort of slowly evolved, you know. So it's in the years since it's, you've it's come to realize like, You're starting to just, yeah, slowly think. I mean, I remember a certain, I would say, enlightening moment when I stepped out of the front door of St. Martin's Art School onto a busy pavement and I actually sort of saw the pavement for the first time. The pavement, you know, because it's a, it's a public space that you're allowed to walk on. You don't, you're not trespassing on this, you're allowed to walk on it and you could fit a whole series of pavements together in London and you could be walking on them for the rest of your life. Well, let's... Seeing as we've got you at St. Martin's, you're at St. Martin's from what, 66 to... 68, something like that? Uh, 67 to... Six, yeah, 66 to 60s. Yeah, that's right. Up to 68. Yeah. So... Two so, years, 66 to 68. Yeah, so there's... You're there with people like Richard Long and, and Gilbert and George, and this is a time in, in art history when the importance of the object isn't just being questioned, it's being you know, obliterated. And there's this great mar moment at St. Martin's in 1966 when an instructor named John Latham... Latham? takes uh, out of the school library a book of Clement Greenwood, uh, Clement Greenberg essays and invites over a group of artists and students and along with Barry Flanagan they rip pages out of the book. Because uh, this was a type of a Bible, so to say. Yeah, yeah, this was the fundamental text of the great modernist moment and what we would now consider the mo modernist culmination, really. So they rip the pages out of the book, everybody took a page, stuck it in their mouth, chewed it into pulp, spit it back out, and then all of this material was distilled and then returned to the library. And if that sounds a little bit familiar, there's kind of a, a kissing cousin link to John Baldessari's cremation project, Corpus Wafers, which is in the Hirshhorn's collection. That, that, that work dates to 1970. So did you participate in that? In I 19? did not, know. Did you know about it? I did. What did you know about it? How did it live as a thing? Well, because I'm technically uneducated, uh, I, I have no qualifications what Whatsoever. So I was not allowed to go on to the degree course, and this was in the degree course. Ah. So it, it's just kind of something I heard. You know, you have to have, you've got to be qualified to pulp a book. You know. <laughs> So uh, I, I didn't. Uh, I, I just heard about it, you know, in the library. Somebody. Say so what something. did students think of it? Well, of course, everybody thought it was wonderful. You know, uh, you know, it, it just seemed like a very, you know, clear statement to make. Really, yeah. Uh, so in art history, this story over 50 years has taken, or 40 years, or whatever it is. I look at art. What do I know about math? Has taken on a mythic quality as being like a foundational moment for the dematerialization of the art object. Did anybody think about it that way then? Yeah, I think I think um, th this issue, issue of dematerialization, you know, because it means it's in one reading of it means that everything actually disappears completely. So because it this material dematerializes away into thin air, but of course it, all that happened with that is, is it, the, the artwork was transformed. I mean, not, not I mean the the book was transformed into an artwork. 
So it was a transformation of substance, material, and weight, no doubt. So I think that that was interesting. This kind of this change, and, and of course, I fully understand. It's very obvious to say that if you're imagining art should be um, uh, a representational painting, and then you hear about this, then you say, well, this is just uh, this is just ridiculous. You know, this is completely stupid. But at the time, of course, it took a certain amount of nerve to do that and took a state of mind, a mindset to sort of move art over going this way now instead of continuing this way. You know? So I think it felt important inside the art school, but it's taken on a greater importance afterwards, you know, subsequently. Was it part of your dematerialization of art? It, no, it wasn't. No, mm. Be- because of this kind of because I was on a yeah, not even a course. I I, I went to St Martin's on a um, uh, sort of situation. I think it was called. Uh, anyway, there was no degree for it. The non-degree course. I think it might have been called. Yeah, no, non-degree. So that 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 was kind of in, this work was in another kind of realm. And what the the students in the group I was in, they they were uh, people were quite quite often critical, you know, you, you'd, you would go to a very important exhibition, go and see this exhibition, it's really vitally important, you'll really like the work, it's amazing, and this person's highly successful and doing well, and you just walk in and just sort of shake your head and walk back out straight away, you know, because really the mind was going somewhere else altogether, it wasn't, had no int- I had no interest in, you know, colour field paintings or pop art or anything, I, my, my mind just w- wasn't going there at all, I didn't like any of that at all, so they were, even though they're paintings, paintings nevertheless are objects, and so in thinking about your question, the issue of dematerialization is completely relevant uh, to this kind of response of rejection, because rejection is equally creative as uh, acceptance. You, know, it's, it's, you, you can be very creative in your rejection of, of an idea, a person, an artwork. So this dematerialization aspect, you know, from John Latham and then in the other uh, area students that I was in, the, it was all kind of in the moment, in the in the air at that time. So, so Latham is sixty-six. The walk you described a moment ago was early sixty-seven. Yeah. In nineteen sixty-eight and sixty-nine, you make your first trips here. Yes, correct, yes. Where did you go and why? <laughs> this is the driver sitting in the front row here. <laughs> uh, I, was, I came from England, went to the U.S., met Nancy. And Your wife? We, we, and we uh, drove, she drove out west. But the the, the issue really, in speeding up and <laughs> on the answer, is that the first important book that I ever read in my life was... Um, uh, Wooden Leg, and Wooden Leg is the life story of a northern Cheyenne, and I read that when I was <laughs> very young, but it had a very big impact on me, it went into my mind, I read it so many times, it felt as though I had actually lived, you know, inside this story of this northern Cheyenne, Wooden Leg, and he uh, he was something like 18, I think, at the time of the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And so this is where we went. We went to uh, the places that when I was a student in England, uh, I was at the Royal College of Art. Actually, I should go back a little bit further than that and say that 
my first exhibition uh, was when I was still a student at the Royal College of Art. And I, I made an exhibition at a gallery in Dusseldorf in Germany called um, Conrad Fischer. Very, became a very famous, important gallery in Dusseldorf in Germany. And so the first part of this journey, as it were, skiving off from the Royal College of Art was that uh, I went to um, East Berlin for half a day. At that time, the Berlin Wall was seriously up uh, because that was 1969, and uh, we went through, through uh, Checkpoint Charlie as tourists, but it doesn't really matter if you technically a tourist. I mean, you, you go in and you see another world and completely sort of everything, certain activity here. You come to a wall, it's completely different over here. So for a student to go into East Berlin you know, even for a half a day, this was uh, extraordinary. So then, after having these two experiences in Germany, which were very strong, very powerful, and also it was the time when Germany, uh, especially in Dusseldorf and Cologne, was generating a huge amount of art making. Uh, powerful collectors were developing, art collections were being developed. It was, uh, you know, extraordinary moment uh, at that time. So then, I, so then I went back to the Royal College of Art. And they said, uh, the dean wants to speak to you. I went into the dean's office, and he said, um, you, you know, you, you, you can't stay here any longer. You know, you, you have to leave. <laughs> You've been fired. You've lost it. You're gone. And, uh, and, and then, of course, I'd say, well, what's, what's the reason? And he said, uh, lack of attendance. <laughs> so then in, in researching these various sites that I'd read about in the American West, they essentially they all relate to the issue of, I would say, in relation to today as well, in relation to uh, land claims or land rights. So the, so the places that we visited were the Battle of the Little Bighorn, uh, Wounded Knee, uh, the Badlands, and Pine Ridge Oglala Sioux Reservation. And these, these are places still very much alive today. I mean, for instance, there's the issue of the pipeline in North Dakota at the moment. So, And then in a book called Indigenous History of the United States, then the Battle of the Little Bighorn is referred to as the beginning of a sort of US mindset in terms of world military domination. But then when you return to actually this area of South Dakota and Montana, Wyoming and so on, and then, then, you, then it is the issue of the ind indigenous people's relationship to the land. And then then we can then spread from uh, here in the United States, then we can go to Aust Australia. So the issue of the land rights with uh, indigenous peoples in Australia, Kalahari desert bush people in, in Africa, Amazonia, Tibet, and so on. So it, 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 it was a kind of, um, this book <laughs> wouldn't like, you know, triggered off uh, slowly, but suddenly uh, a whole lot of issues and ideas and thoughts. And so <clears throat> when I was a student, I was too embarrassed, uh, to be honest, I was too embarrassed to talk about this because at that time, 1967, to talk for a, sort of like a student age person, talk about American Indians, it was though really you should be, you should be like eight years old. <laughs> you shouldn't be talking about these things. You know. So th this is clearly absurd, but it's extremely successful form of racism, you know, um, that, that the issue of uh, indigenous rights, land rights, um, can be kind of reduced to... Uh, you know, Pulp Fiction and Hollywood movies. So is this the beginning of your interest in the land and landscape and spending a lot of time in it? Is, is this that moment? Yes. So then that moment is coincident with 
your the beginning of your interest in native cultures. Yes, and they and then they become kind of inseparable for the rest of your career. Yeah. Well, one other question about about your your early interest in landscape. 1949, Kenneth Clark, famous British art historian, publishes one of the most important art history, or certainly famous most, most famous art history books of the 20th century, Landscape into Art. So we're right, coming right out of World War II. This is a, a major moment for British embrace of, of its past in a positive way after kind of 10 terrible years. Any impact whatsoever that book and that response? None. No. Yeah, I didn't think so, but you check. So, because I'm from England, and when 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 you when you sort of in, it, you get a direct question from you, and 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 I'm supposed to say, well, I don't, you know, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Being from England, but you know, I've been taught to say no or yes or correct. No, that's, it's, it's, it's great because art historians tend to layer these things in, yeah. whether you think they yeah. belong there or not, and that has happened with you. Yeah. So I think I think in, in thinking about your question, that really that was one of those areas that I veered away from, uh, mm. avoided was a sort of English landscape history, uh, landscape painting, Turner, Constable, Caspar David Friedrich, um, although. Now in later life, I can like the paintings of Caspar Friedrich, but I think at that time the, there was a huge burden of history, the whole issue of skill, talent, ability, making uh, a, a painting of a recognizable situation you know with, with, with talent you know this, this was of no interest at all because really what, what has that got to do with the landscape? It's got to do with art, painting, oil paint, canvas, but it, it doesn't seem to have anything directly at all to do with, with nature, with the landscape. Uh, and, and then you have the word landscape, and people say, oh, yes, you take landscape photographs or you're a landscape artist. But the word landscape go also goes back in history, in, in time. And then wh where do we say we, we're starting? When we, when we use the word landscape, when are we, what, what date are we referring to? You know, because the the landscape of 300 years ago is in no way the same as the landscape in 2016. Mm -hmm. so, so the word landscape, it's so vague that, that it's dangerous. So you were interested in personal experience. When you're, you're at St. Martin's, you meet a young man named Richard Long. You know, we think of, you know, on, on last week's podcast, uh, we had Sebastian Smee talking about his new book, Art and Rivalry, and he pairs Manet and Degas and Matisse and Picasso. And so here you are in your early 20s, you meet Richard Long, and you two begin to travel the world. You go to Bolivia and Peru, the Himalayas, and so forth. How did you two come to begin going to these places together? How did that start? Uh, well, being students together, um, and then in uh, yeah, so we we we've made uh, eleven walks from nineteen seventy two to nineteen ninety, and uh, we went together as friends, and we decided where to go mutually. Uh, nobody went on somebody else's walk. We went together as friends. And basically, uh, in London, we would go to um, Stanford's map shop. <laughs> uh, we would walk around the map shop <laughs> and sort of find, oh, this looks good. And then um, and then we would sort of start to research it. And right next to it, there was a terrible 
cafe, you know, which made in those days a sort of coffee which was like 2% coffee and 98% boiling hot milk and water, you know, so, so there's no caffeine in it. So from, from this kind of sort of general discussion, then we, yeah, then we had certain places that we wanted to go to and visit and think about. And uh, for example, uh, the first one was in 1972, and we went to um, Nazca, which is uh, the, the Nazca drawings, the Nazca line drawings often lines but also shapes of animals and birds probably people are familiar with those drawings and it's uh, more or less t towards the coast in in Peru the desert area and so obviously this was excellent place for for the work of Richard Long because of uh, the one of those images that you showed that a line made by walking yep that this then relates to what we saw uh, in the desert in the, the Pampa desert in in Peru so we in 1972 we were we stepped out of a car and it was in a, a dip in the Pan American Highway and here was a cafe and here was a building actually it was a cantina is it cafe is not a good word and there was a building and so then we um, we said to somebody standing there well uh, well where's Maria Reich you know Maria Reich being the German astronomer and, and, and he just said, here she comes. And then he, on the desert, you could see the headlights going up and down like that of her vehicle. And then she arrived. And then, so then another direct question, where are the drawings? <laughs> and uh, so then she said, they're over there somewhere. Because of the issue of destruction by people moving about on the drawings. So eventually, after we'd been there for a week, um, we, we met her at, right out on the pamper, and her wooden canvas bed had broken. And so we we mended the wooden wood, wooden camping bed that she slept on, which was just two pieces of wood like that, two sides, and a sort of sagging piece of canvas in the middle. And it was broken, and we helped to mend it. And then, in course of that, then we were able to talk with her and ask her questions and so on. And so, so then I said to her, "Will it be?" okay if I walk on the outline of the condor is, is, uh, one of the interpretations of one of the large birds there on the ground is the shape of a sea condor that, that's, I think it has other bird names as well but sea condor is what she said at the time and these lines are made if, if, if this floor is the, the base of the desert on top of the desert just like that with stone um, people removed the stones and moved them to another place and then in the course of doing that then they exposed a line, which is very, very similar to the work of Richard Long. Similar kind of, similar way of working. Uh, you remove something to expose a piece of flat ground. So she said to me that, yes, you, you can walk up on the sea condor, uh, which is a very big bird. I mean, it's, I don't know, in, it's the whole size of this room, if not bigger. So I walked on it, but she said, you must walk very, very slowly in order that you don't disturb anything. You, you sort of just lift and go like, and don't shuffle. So then, just a few years ago, I, I opened a book about the present-day Nazca and going there. And, of course, now it is illegal. You are not allowed to go there at all. And if you are found on the desert, you actually get fined, and you can also be imprisoned because now this is a UNESCO site. And so, hmm. so the, just this sort of strange issue of time, the passage of time and the circumstances changing from... I don't know when they made it a UNESCO site, but uh, in the last 20 years anyway. Were you guys going on these trips early on, and you know, as early as 72, thinking about making work? Or were you just 
two young guys out of college on a lark? No, we, no, we're def definitely going there as artists. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because we didn't have, you know, I think it's important to point out that in 1972 when we went there, we, we, we were not uh, employed. So we... Um, I, I taught for three months in 1970, and then since then I haven't had a job since. <laughs> since uh, I haven't worked, as the saying is, I haven't worked since then. But but of course we worked at being artists. So, and I think it's really important this idea of that it's a huge decision to be dedicated. First of all, dedicated to being an artist, and then a commitment to making art only about walking. So, um, th these were huge, huge uh, decisions, and um, I'm, which I'm still struggling with today. <laughs> In, in 1975, you, the two of you went to Nepal, and one of the, I don't know if objective is the right word, but one of the objectives of the trip was, in your words, as young artists, our only philosophy was to attempt to limit the topics of our conversations to only what we could see, which is a great way of building limits around something. I love that idea. So did you do that, and how did it work out? <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we both felt the same way. It wasn't the imposition of one on, on the other person. We both had this feeling that uh, we, we'd never been to anywhere like uh, like Nepal ever before and so w once we got walking we walked from a, a place called Dololgat and we went on a, we went on a bus from Kathmandu to Dololgat and then we walked on the what's called the Everest trail to Everest base camp uh, and then we came back to Lukla and flew out and that was 25 days walking but the kind of idea of keeping the topic from drifting, you know, it's totally relevant. It's even more, much more relevant today because now today we can easily have conversations with people who are not eyewitness accounts to anything that they have said. I think this is a sort of major, major current issue that you you're informing somebody sitting here based on what you've read here on your, you know, your phone. And so that was long before the issue of the internet and all this access to information. Uh, but even then, the, the mood, the spirit was that you would only talk about what you could see or what someone said or what they were wearing or uh, did you see that person's feet, you know, because... A lot of the porters, uh, most of the porters are barefoot, uh, and so the feet have swelled, have swelled up, their large feet, and so you notice all these things, and so it becomes really, was really important for us not, not to start talking about how, what film have you seen. You know, it seemed a very, like a sort of little bit destructive idea to talk about a film or something like that. You know, only, only talk about what you can see. So it was, it was effective. It, it mm. kind of functioned like the Richard Serra verb list in the sense that it focused you on the thing. Yeah, yeah. The curator, Andrew Wilson, of the just closed, as in last week, survey of British conceptualism at the Tate summarized kind of your progress toward the walk as before 1973, Fulton's work was usually the photo work, and after 73, it was always, the artwork was always the walk. You agree with that? And what what about nineteen seven? What happened in seventy three yeah. that did that? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a little bit complicated to sort of explain it, but but it is it is relevant uh, in a way to uh, to the history of what I've uh, been making. So the first walk, which I described, nineteen sixty seven, with other students at St Martin's. So then from nineteen sixty seven to I think something like the sixteenth of October nineteen seventy three. You I, think? <laughs> I, I um, a second. 2nd of February 1967 to the 16th of October 1973. Um, 
the possibilities seemed um, sort of big and all sorts of different ideas and all sorts of possibilities but I could see that this is difficult to describe but very very important that when I was a student I, I could I could see something or feel something and then I made an artwork about that and that artwork that I made was not about walking so what happened was that between 67 and 73 I made different kinds of artworks about generally about walking all about walking but that the walks themselves were not easy to describe. In other words, that the walks were, let's say, vague. Some of them were, were vague. But the first walk that I made, where it was a very clear idea, uh, I, live, I live on the British Isles, and so at the neck of England, which is very narrow, something like 71 miles, I made my first coast-to-coast -coast walk, walking from the west coast to the east coast, and, and I really liked that. It was a very, very clear idea. So from that was 1971. So then I had to start thinking more, more in terms of that the ideas are really vital, and that, that's the, the start that then goes into the walk, and then from the walk, then the art results from the walk. So if if I'm just wandering about taking photographs, then, then basically I'm a type of a sort of art photographer, which is not what I wanted at all. So in the autumn of 1973, I walked uh, over a thousand miles from northeast Scotland to southwest England, and this was so incredible and mind-changing that I then decided that I would then make everything, had, everything had to do with walking. Uh, I couldn't make, from this moment on, I could not make any more art that didn't result from a walk, a particular specific walk. And that, that, that was that uh, thousand mile walk was the thing that completely convinced me to make this commitment. But in making this commitment, it means that <clears throat> I can't make all these other things. So th this was really the part that's not very clear. Yes, there's art made about walking, but in this commitment, it also means I couldn't make all these other things, you know, which are also very, very, could be very interesting making a certain sculpture, a film, or whatever it would be, but had nothing to do with walking. So that took some sort of mind change to say, I'd like to make that, but I've made this commitment, so I'm not going to make that. So then gradually, now it's all, all, all automatic now, but so the, the result really was that um, every piece of art that I make now since 1973 end of 73, you know, all has a, a walk text. Everything has a walk text. I don't make any art without a walk text. My guest is Hamish Fulton. We'll be right back after a break. Support for The Man Podcast comes from Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting three exhibitions that reframe the objects and environments of everyday life, July 29th through October 15th, 2016. Exquisite Every Day showcases 18th century European works of decorative art from the J. Paul Getty Museum that highlight the period's achievements in domestic design. The Ordinary Must Not Be Dull explores how Class Oldenburg's soft sculptures playfully alter the material, form, and scale of commonplace items, overturning sculptural conventions. Architecture Collective Raumleber Berlin's commission 4562 Enright Avenue disassembles a structurally unsound St. Louis house, giving its salvaged elements new life inside the Pulitzer as an installation that explores the history, present, and future of urban dwellings. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. 
important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit kimballart.org for more information. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents In Real Life, 100 Days of Film and Performance. Now through January, head to the Hammer to see four month-long film exhibitions, public rehearsals in the museum's courtyard, and 15 weekends of performances by artists including Trajal Harrell, Dan Levinson, Mutant Salon, Jennifer Moon and Laub, Allison O'Daniel, Janine Olison, Laura Schnitger, Simon Lee, Simon Lung, and more. The four month-long film exhibitions include seven short films examining crisis and technology from Artists Film International, Echo, the videos of One Otrix, Point, Never, and related works, How to Love a Watermelon Woman, featuring the films of Cheryl Dunier, and The Workshop Years, Black British Film and Video after 1981. Find a schedule and details for In Real Life at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. And now back to my conversation with Hamish Fulton. I want to talk about a specific piece you made in 1971. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. It's called The Pilgrim's Way. It consisted of uh, a black and white picture of clearly a deeply cut path through a wooded area. The the path had been so heavily traversed over many hundreds of years that it's kind of six feet below the level of the ground on which trees are growing around it. And the text under under the picture is The Pilgrim's Way, 1971, a hollow line on the North Downs, ancient paths forming a route between Winchester and Canterbury, 10 days in April, a 165-mile walk. There is a, you know, this is an old medieval pilgrimage route. Was the collision of a long history with the present walk of interest to you? Um, if I understand you correctly, you mean the, the relationship between yeah. history and media? Yes, yeah. yes, <clears throat> yes. So why was that, what about that worked for you? The issue is not, uh, with respect, is not religion with respect is not Christianity <clears throat> what it is is um, the existence of a of an ancient trail ancient path ancient way a public right away you're allowed to walk there so that that was really what was of real interest not not the issue of various small churches along the way and then ending at Canterbury Cathedral but this this is this is what happens, but um, that that wasn't of any interest to me. What was of interest was this ancient, uh, you know, uh, path road. Of course, in 1971, it, it's still you know you could still find these pieces like uh, you were describing the, the hollow lane, um, but then you go on a pavement, then you go on a road, then a farm track, and so it's all fitted together to make this route from town of Winchester to Canterbury. But it was the old way, you know, the old the old road, which was what was really interesting and that this route had legally survived all, all the way through history. You know, in, in Britain there is a, a, a right by law, a right of access to walk, you know, more or less anywhere you want, even if it's across private land, provided that there is a local tradition of access. So, you know, you can, you can be growing vegetable marrows 
which I guess they still grow in Britain, right? <laughs> you could be growing vegetable marrows and you can just walk through somebody's backyard through their vegetable marrows. Was, was that of interest to you that there was a by law rooted historical tradition of access almost everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also increased with recent in recent years yeah, with the right yeah. to roam. Yeah. And then of course in Sweden it's even more, so to say, severe that you can go and, and you can put you could go onto a farm and put your tent up. I think some something like the rule is that the from the house you can't you shouldn't see the tent or something like that. But certainly this this idea, well, we use the word access, it sounds legal, but it is legal, but also then there's the access that, uh, the reverse is that you, you cannot go there. You can't go in there because it's private. So, so, it's a, so it's an issue of relationship between it's legal, it's public, you can go there, and now you can't go in there because this is private. So if you go way back in history, then, then people, or, or hunter-gatherer people, are living in areas where there, there isn't this kind of barbed wire fence or this gate or private keep out. It, it's, you, you're moving about all, yeah, all over the land and by the river and through the trees. Uh, so, so this access is what you're talking about. It's really, really important. And th there is an Italian artist, Carreri, and he, he, he sort of specializes in the idea of trespass. So, so uh, I made a project with him in um, Sardinia, and we were going along, and then and, and then he sees the sign, you know, about keep out privates, all in Italian. But he said, ah, you know, you you felt so good. His whole kind of idea is to, is to is to sort of climb the wall and go into private property, you know, because of this idea, you know, the the opposite of closed keep out but you know and, th and then of course then there's the issue of prisons and so on and so on and, and then I mean it just goes on into all different areas of life but I think I think when you're used to not being able to go through somewhere that's one thing and then another person in another country has a path they can go right through over that way they can keep going that way for days you know so, so it's different it's just the comparison yeah so for access to can for the public to continue to have this access under British law, the tradition of, of accessing land has to continue. You're conscious that because you're a fairly famous artist and a, and a pretty big deal, that your art is part of what maintains Britain's right to access where people want, want to cross. Mm. And that was important to you. I didn't think of it in the terms that you described, but it, you know, obviously the individual contributes to the maintaining of it all. Yes, yes. We talked about the Pilgrim's Way. In the 1980s, you kind of moved toward instructing the production of commercial-style wall painting, such as the 1985 Moonrise Kent, England, which is in the Hirshhorn's collection and which is on view now and which is pretty glorious. What in the transition from the photograph to commercial wall painting was important and even necessary to you? I, I think I think at the beginning, you know, that well, for, for the entire 70s, I I only made framed photo text works, and all the texts were about walks, and then. In sort of simplistic terms, you could say that the image drifted away, and then the small writing at the bottom then became the large writing, and so that the the photograph, the image, had gone, and now it was all the emphasis on the on the text. But I, I think it's really of interest to me um, all, the, all all sorts of different ways of presenting art that results from walks. So it's not that I then became, you know, uh, a sort of um, 
wool work artist. Uh, it, it, it was just an evolution to emphasize the, uh, the words because when I only worked in the 1970s with um, framed photo text works, I, I had the strong suspicion that people would walk and they, because you only have several seconds looking at an artwork. I mean, it's not like anybody's going to stand there and study the artwork. They, they, you have X number of seconds. Uh, museum studies uh, say whatever it is, 43 seconds off. But I think that, that, that I felt that people didn't read what, it, what was below the photograph because the writing is very small. So then it was a simple idea to sort of do away with the, uh, the photo and then increase the point size. So you have, like I've had lettering, you know, it's like one, one meter high or whatever. So that now, but still, even then, people don't necessarily read large writing. Uh, that's an assumption, but, but it was just to, to increase, emphasize uh, the writing, the words, the walk text became more emphasized by this means. One other inside art question, and then I want to get outside, at least metaphorically. You, you, you started using pictures, as we discussed, and then language. I don't mean to ask this question in a way that suggests you should have done anything else. I, I just mean it in, in, in an historical way. Super 8 as a, as, a, as a video film thing developed by Kodak in 65, which happens to be when you, the year before, your, your first year in college, the year before you get to St. Martin's, were you ever tempted by video? Was did you consider it? Was it? Yes, I mean, a lot of yes. people did go that way in like California. Absolutely, especially. yes, yes. No, I, I mean, I, I absolutely don't have a good answer for why I didn't. I mean, uh, <laughs> it, you know, I mean, I, I was interested then. I'm interested now, but there, there aren't any results. So, uh, hmm. so I've, I've only made one film. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so it just didn't. It's, it's very interesting, but for some reason, I, I didn't do that. Huh. You know, well, speaking of that moment, though, you know, that, we now call it conceptual art. I don't know when that that term, if anybody's ever really pinned down when that term started. But so at this moment in London, where you're doing what we now call conceptual art in '65, '6, '7, '8, independent of each other, without any of you really knowing each other, same things happening in LA, same things happening in Amsterdam, it's happening in San Francisco. In, in some ways, it's happening everywhere, but New York, although it's happening in New York a little bit, it's happening in Germany. Do you have a guess? as to why all of you were tending in this direction at one time without really knowing about any of the mm. others? <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, I, I can say I, I definitely was um, surprised by certain moments where you, you, you go to meet people that hadn't, they hadn't heard of each other. You know, you'd meet the one artist there, then two weeks later you meet the other artist. They'd never heard of each other, and yet they were making similar work. So, so I know that that for sure happened, but exactly why it happened, I don't know. But I, I do believe that there will be people who will have made studies on this, and there will be some kind of reason for it. I, I, think, it, it, I think it's important to realize that what, what you're talking about, the question is coming from before the internet and the smartphone. Yeah. This, this is really like, you know, maybe the person didn't even have a phone in their own house, let alone a smartphone. Uh, and, and so, you know, and the, and the transport of getting around would be harder. So, so the issue of communication is quite kind of magical when people have similar ideas in different countries, but it's probably just the general evolution of contemporary art history just moving, 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 and people coming to similar conclusions in different parts of the world. Beyond that, I can't really answer the question. Getting outside in the landscape, you were talking earlier about how your interest in Native American culture has kind of blossomed into a broader interest in, in, in Native cultures. 
I understand the cultural interest. How did that become an interest in landscape itself? Was it just once you had the cultural interest, you went into the landscape and started yeah. walking through it? Yeah. Was, is that what did it? No, not not specifically just just that. So you're also reading, finding books that interest you. Yeah, I I, I think I think really that one of the problems that I had in around 1977 was I reached sort of maximum intolerance of this of this. On the one side, my art was described as being about um, English landscape painting tradition, and then in the present time, then land art and then outdoor sculpture, and I completely rejected all of this altogether because. Uh, and, and actually, it's still very much true today that my work is still viewed through the sort of glasses of land art without any knowledge or, of thinking about walking art, because there are a few walking artists today, uh, not as many as land artists, but I think... There, there are different kind of reasons, you know. It's, it's like not history doesn't always go in a, you know, make a good conclusion, go in a straight line. I think, uh, you know, the, the issue of issue of photography. I didn't start with photography because I, I was interested in f- photography, or I didn't study photography. I only used a camera because it was a small thing I could carry, light, small, and I could make images from carrying a small thing rather than a great big easel and the canvas. In the same way, going into the landscape, could it could be the landscape of indigenous peoples, but probably numerically less so. But then there's the issue of the influence from nature, and this, this again is before the issue of the internet and the smartphone, texting and continuous, endless information, people contacting each other. So you go you go into a mountainous area and you, and you go camping and you're alone uh, and, and this is really it's a, it's a kind of huge experience I, I hope I'm answering the question <laughs> um, but this kind of issue of going into a um, open open area you know and you don't you don't see another person if you went a long way that way you'd see a lot of people but of course but if you're just in this area walking about camping maybe there's no trail and so then, then there's the impact of, of nature and the nighttime in the tent. In, in, in uh, Montana, I, I made a, a walk, I think it was something like 1999 or 97, for an exhibition at uh, Missoula Art Museum. So the, the people from the museum, they, they drove me to the Beartooth Mountains, and, and I had a rucksack with everything in it for three weeks, which with three weeks is quite a lot of weight, plus the fact that it could snow. So you have to be a bit warm, and then there's food, fuel, so on. Um, and, and then at night, you know, you put up the tent, and, uh, and you wonder what you're hearing. Is, is what you're hearing is that a black bear? Uh, and, and actually, it's just the stubble on your chin on the sleeping bag. And, um, so, so there's all this sort of learning all the time, learning um, and learning about things, which um, is not to do with like learning a language. If you're Spanish, and now you're going to learn Urdu, you know. It's quite a big leap and they're not the same and all that. So learning from, you know, what, what will happen to your mind if you become uh, dehydrated. And it, is this mood that you're feeling, it, is this mood, your psychological mood, is it a result of dehydration and so on? So it's a huge kind of world of learning, but not learning, you know, how to drive a car or something of this nature or language, but just learning through experience. How important is it to you that your work is 
considered not just within the art historical tradition, but that it's continued with, uh, considered within the tradition of the exploration of nature, whether that's Humboldt or Thoreau or Muir those kinds of people. Mm. Uh, well, well, I'm certainly, I'm, an, I'm definitely an artist. I've right. got no connection with any exploration uh, of it uh, on any level. And I say it like that because I respect explorers. I, I've met one or two explorers, and so, uh, like Erling Kage, the Norwegian explorer. So, uh, there is a big difference, but, but certainly, yes, I mean, uh, you've got the history of, say, abstract painting, and then over here you've got what you're talking about, um, Roderick Nash, um, uh, Thoreau, uh, all, all the various people, uh, Rachel Carson, uh, uh, this whole other world of stories and disciplines that connect to walking. Walking is like the base, the base point from which these things can sort of be attracted or go out. Um, uh, and, and as I said at the beginning, walking is not a me- uh, medium. So it's kind of what, what you make from it, it can be anything, as it were. I know in recent years you've started reading a lot more about nature and the experience of nature and how we treat nature than you did you know, in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any particular books or authors that, that you find yourself thinking about most? Well, in 1989, which I think was the same year that the book was published, I picked up The Rights of Nature by Roderick Nash in Harvard Square, in the Cope in Harvard Square. This, um, this book was very influential, and I think you can find it in many university libraries. And it just the idea of the rights of nature, you know, because previously we would have said nature doesn't have any rights doesn't have any legal rights, you know. And so in this book, uh, The the Rights of Nature by Roderick Nash, it is a study of all of the different... Most, mostly, but not all, North American writers who talk about the environment, and, and I found that really influential. I, I still read it today, and I find it very influential in, in my thinking with all of the different examples of different people and what they've said, So, and, and, and also much more radical than anything in England. In, English nature writing tends towards, I mean, this is a sweeping statement, which is not fair, but tends towards the garden, whereas in North America it tends towards a wilder country. So I'm more interested in the wilder country than I am in the garden. There's nothing wrong with gardens. I, I went to uh, Kyoto and saw Japanese Zen gardens. So, but I think that in North America and, and also Arnie Ness in in Norway, who who also came to Berkeley, California, on deep ecology. Uh, so so Arnie Ness is a very important person in my kind of thinking. And um, just as an anecdote. <laughs> For five years or so, I, I tried through a gallery I worked with in, in Oslo, in, in Norway, um, because one of the people working there was a friend of Arnie Ness, Arnie Ness Sr., not Arnie Ness Jr. Arnie Ness Sr. died at something like 93 years of age. He was the youngest professor of philosophy in, in any Norwegian university. I think he was... I think he was made professor of philosophy age 27, I think. So he's a kind of an amazing brain. He also was a mountaineer. And so he linked up all of these different subjects, you know, um, philosophy, mountaineering, the environment. And he was one of the uh, leading thinkers in, in deep ecology as opposed to shallow ecology, which would say environmental solutions can be made via technology. So he's, they're talking more about behavior. 
So anyway, eventually this person, she got her father, who, who at the time was 73 or something, <laughs> to, uh, to, get, to take me to meet Arnie Ness. And, and for me, meeting Arnie Ness is like somebody else meeting, I don't know, Elvis or someone. So, <laughs> so it, was, it was snowing and there's a lot of ice also on the roads. So I went up to the door, knocked on the door. I thought, wow, this is, this is amazing, knocking on the front door of Arnie Ness. You know, I hope he's in. <laughs> anyway, it was all arranged. So he opened the door and I went to um, uh, shake his hand like that. He took hold of my hand and he, and he did all this kind of wrestling. And then after he'd done the he said, why are you smiling? Uh, he's going like this. And then he, and then he started punching. Uh, <laughs> So, so he said, "Ah, oh, this is this is called Gandhian boxing, you know, non-violent, you know, non-violent Gandhian boxing." So then we we got into the car and um, drove to where where I was allowed to have, uh, because his his time was uh, precious, uh, a two-hour walk with Arnie Ness, so, and basically we were walking on really slippery, icy track. And um, so the man who, who was his student, as I say, the student was about 72 or something, he said, oh, we've forgotten Arnie's tracking sticks. Because now, now he's like going along, he's in his 90s and he's walking along on ice, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he said, uh, Arnie Ness said, oh, in life you must take risks. <laughs> <laughs> So it's, because really, if you're that age and you slip and break a hip, then that yeah, could be yeah. the end of you. <laughs> so we've got you engaging with and interested in and influenced by British traditions and European traditions and North American traditions. The one I've been kind of slow to bring up is Asian traditions. In 2009, you climbed Chamalungma, which is better known as Everest. And you were, for one day, the oldest British man ever to climb Everest. That's just, that's just statistics. <laughs> yes, but it's fun. And you later wrote that to a greater or lesser degree, every one of these walks, and I think you meant throughout your career to some extent, has been influenced by Himalayan Buddhism. How? Himalayan Buddhism in a, a collection of whatever it was, ten walks, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's... It's the influence from Tibetan Buddhism, not as a religion, but as a kind of way of thinking, I would say. so. And these walks were like 72 to 2009 or something, right? I mean, we're talking about a pretty yeah. wide span of time. I mean, I mean, uh, for example, in, in 2000, I went to, on a small English expedition to um, Choyoyu, which is uh, over 8,000 meters, and um, we were, I was extremely fortunate in that, that, that we, we managed to go up, up to above the 8,000 meter mark uh, without, without bottled oxygen. So it, when, you, when you're in these sort of places, in these situations, then it does make you reflect on, on Tibetan Buddhism and uh, but not, but not from a practicing Buddhist point of view. I'm not a practicing Tibetan Buddhist. Uh, that's not true. Uh, but I'm interested in it, which is different, a different kind of thing. But, but I think when you're in these places, you, you absolutely cannot avoid uh, anything to do with Tibetan Buddhism. It's, it's sort of absolutely everywhere. And, and whilst I would say that I, I myself, in my opinion, 
Uh, I, I don't like uh, land art, so I'm not a land artist. I don't want any association with land art. But when, I, when I'm on a trail in the Himalayas and you go up over a pass, then on the pass, basically what you've got is a sort of Himalayan land art because what you have is a great big uh, can of, of rocks. And then from the rocks, then there'll be prayer flags going like that. And then some other flags, and they'll all be shredded in the wind. And then more and more prayer flags are put there. So you have a giant sort of clump of ancient prayer flags, all, all discoloring, because that's the idea. And then the, the, the so-called wind horse, the prayers are being blowing through the prayer flags into the air, you know, and sending the prayers out into the atmosphere. And of course, this, you, you can't not be affected by I couldn't not be affected by that, so... Two more things. There's one particular piece you've made that seems to me anyway to be a little bit outside the way you visually present other walks. It's from 2012. It's a, a guided walk, the representation of a guided walk to the summit of a Bolivian volcano, and I'm going to mess this up, called Likankabur. Likankabur, yeah. Yeah, okay, good. Woo. And so in the visual representation related to that walk, you riff on the famous North Face logo. The North Face logo's white text on a red background, and it says the North Face. Yours is, is white text on a blue background, and it says the South Face. It could be read as the only, that I can think of, overt example of a critique of the commercialization of nature or the outdoors industry in your work. Is it that, and if so, why? <laughs> the, the origin, really, of that work was that in the northern hemisphere, then the north face is away from the sun, and it's the, like the north face of Yigo, for example. In, in the southern hemisphere, then it's the, it's the reverse. And so, so it, ju it just kind of struck me that when you're in the southern hemisphere and you see somebody, and you're, and you're on the south face of a mountain, and you see somebody wearing a north face shirt, then I, I, I sort of, the, the, the kind of, the, the issue of the logo versus the physical reality of the place um, just sort of struck me, and I, you know, made a made a comment on that. I, I didn't really make a comment on the commercialization. I don't think I was really thinking about that. It was more that in the south, that the snow is on the south side. So no intended critique. It, not really. No, no, no. But it, but it was a, it was a way of not a critique, but it was a way of using mm. the well-known, world-famous logo of the North Face. Finally, you have over the years occasionally published. You, you keep notebooks on walks, and you have occasionally published pages or two-page spreads from them. I, I, I like going for hikes myself. I occasionally take a notebook. My handwriting and note-taking on my hikes is nothing, nowhere near as tidy as yours. What role do those notebooks and note-taking play in your work on those walks? <laughs> I, I write. My, my working practices, I write every single day in, a, in, in, in yeah. one, of, one of these. This is, uh, this is um, my last three weeks. Little moleskin red cover. Yeah, they're, they're all <laughs> August, September, October. So the idea really is that, that when you're walking, uh, this is like one of the origins, when you're walking um, and you're tired, then you become exhausted, and now you, you, you don't have the mental ability to write something down that's really interesting and really important to you. So, so then I had to sort of change this practice and, and, and sort of try to write, all, you know, off and on the whole time, really. So every morning I, I write in my notebook uh, when I'm not on a walk, you know, so any morning, every morning, but on walks, and I, I try to have a notebook that's very handy to write. And it, I, I, don't want, I don't want to type in something because I, I want to be able to 
also draw something. If I see something, I want to draw, you know, the shape of a particular leaf or, or the shape of a lizard, for instance. I don't, I don't want to go researching trying to find which lizard it is on, on an iPad. So, so I find that it's really interesting to review these notebooks because it's just a whole pages and pages of non secutors, and, and I quite I quite like non secutors that you know you have this thing, then you have that thing. But after a while, then you start to see you know patterns that interconnect and develop, um, which um, is what results out of all, all of these hundreds of notebooks that I've got. So. It, Basically, it's a sort of like a little bit, it's not true, but a little bit of a grip on, on time. And, and then if I review a, a notebook from 30 years ago, then there's no way I could remember yeah. those, those details about a, a, a dead bird I found on the side of the road or something. It's just impossible to recall that, but there it is in the notebook. So, Do things migrate from the notebooks into the wall paintings? They, they do a little bit. It, it, they do a little bit. So you ha you, 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 you've kept these for 30, 35 years? Yeah, they All go. They, yeah, yeah. So you must have quite an archive. Yeah, yeah. What's going to happen to the archive? I'd like to make it into a book. <laughs> oh, yeah. like like a but 200 it, page book or like a 20 <laughs> volume book? <laughs> uh, no, it has to be shrunk. But it's a bit like trying to write an encyclopedia, though. So uh, I think it's a it's a it's a huge uh, operation. But uh, that that would be the dream come true. You know. And then presumably this archive will live on after your death, yeah, somewhere yeah. in perpetuity, and that's yeah. something you're conscious of too. But uh, on that point, that reminds me that there's a maybe Minikonju Sioux Indian. I think he was young at the Battle of the Little Bighorn, and he uh, Bad Bearheart, I think his name is, or Bad Bullheart, maybe Bad Bullheart, and. He was then taken to Fort Marion in Florida and imprisoned for something like 10 years. And at that time, then he was given, the Indian people were then given ledgers, you know, for accounts. And so, the, so then this Indian, he made a whole, apparently a huge uh, collection of ledgers of uh, d sort of recalling, you know, retrospectively his life. And they're, they're all drawn um, yeah, with pen and ink and color and pencil and so on in, into all these ledger books. And a, a photographer photographed all, every single page, and they're here somewhere in the Smithsonian. But the interesting thing is that for me, as a contemporary artist, was that his sister inherited all of these ledgers with all his diaries, all his writing. She inherited them, and then when she died in the 20th century, all of the ledgers were buried with her. And, and I thought, this is, this is a very interesting comment on the value. Wow. Uh, because for a Western person, they would, don't do that, we'll, please, we, we'll just keep, we'll put them in a library. But, that, but it says, and as was the custom, huh. they're all buried with the sister, because she had inherited it from the brother. Wow. Hamish Fulton, thanks so much. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.